0: Glad y'all are here. Uh, Krista asked me to add something to her announcements. Um, mattresses for the Thornton's. The Thornton's are uh, how far out? They're close. I mean, time wise, to somebody, I hadn't, I don't have it, that on the calendar, but it's soon. We're getting their house equipped right now. We're getting their house set up. They have a pretty cool house. I uh, went by and saw it on Friday, on Saturday, and uh, it uh, the the house backs up to the soccer fields. So we actually have a plan, a little money making plan of letting families sit in the house and watch their little children play on the soccer fields and not freeze to death. So for a small fee, you know, a little, yeah, so kind of offset the expenses of the rental. But actually, that, that's beside the point. We're trying to get mattresses for them. Uh, we've got some good furniture. Uh, used mattresses are kind of a bummer if, you know, if you kind of can understand what I'm saying there. So we want to try and get some inexpensive good mattresses that are going to tide them over for, this, for the little period that they're here. Uh, so, um, what we 're encouraging folks to do is for life groups maybe to work together. If life groups are sort of pitching in, then uh, many hands will make light work of that. So um, if life, work, life groups can work together on that, uh, Christy Cardwell will be there next on Thursday from between 10 to two, 10 in the morning till two in the afternoon. so uh, that 's a little window to hopefully get those last few things put together. Um, Figure out where. Yes, I want to pray next, and then I want to get us into our sermon. A little discombobulated with a little announcement there. We're going to pray for another church in our community. We do that each week. Uh, We're going to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church. Chet Haney is the pastor there. Chet Haney found out this week that he has uh, cancer. Has some uh, um, uh, had a sort of a surprising report from the doctor. Uh, unrelated injury led them to some uh, a diagnosis of cancer, so he's going to start chemotherapy treatment here pretty soon. So we want to pray for Chet, we want to pray for that church, uh, we want to pray that God will be glorified, not in spite of the suffering, but even through the suffering, so like he does. Let's pray. God, we are thankful this morning that we get to gather and enjoy you in song and supper and um, fellowship and uh, hearing a word from you, Lord, you have blessed us already just gathering, and uh, thankful for our our time in worship this morning in song. Lord, we want to continue our our worship this morning in prayer. Lord, we want to ask you to bless Highland Terrace Baptist Church, Lord, in this uh, surprising season with Chet's diagnosis. Lord, we're we're thankful that the prognosis is good. We're thankful that the treatment plan uh, is almost routine, but Lord, we recognize that uh, uh, you hold life in your hands, and we ask you to guard and protect, preserve Chet's life and his ministry and his word and his shepherding role and his preaching and his role as a husband and a father. Lord, we just ask you to, uh, we just ask if we can entrust him into your good hands. I pray that you'd watch over him, that you'd watch over this treatment plan. Lord, we too pray that you would bless their church in this season. Lord, that you would give him a potency in the pulpit as he is uh, reckoning with real life and death issues, even in his own life, Lord, and um, depending on you maybe in a way that he hasn't, maybe ever or maybe in some time, or that you would make for some potent, um, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled teaching and preaching from his pulpit, Lord, from your pulpit at that church. We're entrusting them to you this morning and asking you to bless them. Lord, we're thankful... Uh, for the few minutes that we have together today, I'm thankful for uh, the uh, the opportunity that we have to revisit uh, an old friend. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, last year, we moved into a book, uh, the book of Job, and it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful journey. We are nearing the the final few uh, sermons in the book of Job, and um, they have yet to be preached. And this Sunday will be the first of those. Uh, I'm anticipating two more, possibly the third. We may land on Easter morning in Job, finishing up the book of Job, Uh, which might seem strange, but it actually would be quite fitting. The book of Job was, was something that the early church studied in Passion Week. And I think as you see these next few Sundays unfold, you'll understand why that could really be poetic and really be fitting. Um, when we, about the time that I uh, stopped preaching for a season, I got a letter in the mail. I got a letter from a guy named uh, Randy Starry. Um, Randy is, is um, in jail, and he wrote to me from prison, and a uh, very uh, heartfelt letter Uh, explaining that he'd come to know the Lord through the preaching of Job, through listening in to the journey that we'd been on. He said, (laughs) he said, I'm not going to lie and say that it wasn't like reading a great book until the end and then having the last few pages ripped out. (laughs) And then he said, LOL, which, lots of love, that's what that means, right? Sweet, I thought it was sweet, LOL. But, we, we did we did kind of stop short, and um, I think it's kind of cool, though, that hopefully I, I reached out to Randy recently and asked him to tune back in, if he hadn't been tuned in, uh, to finish the rest of the story, and um, I think it really is pretty special that we get to finish this story in these next few weeks, so you can turn to the book of Job, if you haven't turned there already. I want to do some preliminary work before we climb back into it, and actually... In actuality, what I'm doing this morning in some ways is sort of refreshing us with the story. Uh, It's been a season, um, quite a time since we've been in Job, and we have new faces, we have new families that may not have been part of that journey. And even for those who were part of that journey... It would be fitting to sort of refresh. I needed to be refreshed in it before we landed the plane in the last few sermons. So this is not going to be a retelling. It's not going to be a re of any previous sermon. In some ways, it's sort of the synthesis of a season of sermons, which um, I brought vitamin water. Need a little bit. Y'all know what vitamin water means. It means we ain't playing. And I brought my laser pointer. Two, two symptoms that we are really going to get serious this morning. Now don't fret, that, I don't think that's going to apply in complexity or length. I think it's just going to be that we, are, uh, we have some work to do to sort of get back immersed into the story. So let me kind of set the groundwork with some preliminary things. First of all, the book of Job is part of a wisdom trilogy, okay? A wisdom trilogy made up of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, And it's an important trilogy, the way they fit together. So let me see if I can kind of introduce you to um, the way way this thing plays out, kind of help you understand where Job fits in the story. Go ahead and put that first image up with the word Proverbs. There's a line out there next to it. I think Proverbs, if I were to graphically represent the book of Proverbs, it would be a very straight line. We have a lot of L3 folks. We have a lot of folks that are engineers, engineers, we have a lot of folks, too, that are just a personality type, that really like things that are really straightforward, really black and white, really clear. Book of Proverbs really is probably a great ministry to those type personalities because it is very much linear. It, uh, you know There's many, many passages in the book of Proverbs that sort of read as an if-then statement. Here's an example. Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words, a lot of Proverbs is written to a son. It's a great father-son sort of interaction here. My son, if you receive my words, there's the if statement, and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth came knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Some really nice, beautiful promises there in Proverbs, right? If then statements, if you are uh, seeking the Lord, if you're listening to wise words from moms and dads, then God is going to watch over your way. And you will understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. Some really great and strong and potent promises that come from the book of Proverbs. Here's another little example just in the next chapter. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then, the if was implied, then the barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Really nice linear promises in the book of Proverbs, right? Then there's the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? So go ahead and put that next image there of Ecclesiastes, and don't put the next one yet. Ecclesiastes sort of starts out like you're thinking, okay, it's part of a wisdom trilogy, so it's going to be pretty linear because wisdom's linear, right? Until wisdom continues, and go ahead and hit the next slide there, and it actually turns out it's going all over the place. I couldn't figure out how to animate my slides on Google Slides, so someday I'll figure that out. It'd be really cool where you could actually follow the line. But you can just imagine this thing just following all over the page. Uh, Ecclesiastes proves that life is not a recipe. It's not a chemistry experiment. Some of y'all have taken chemistry. you You know, the deal, you put this in, you put this in, and then you get this. You heat it up to a certain temperature for a certain period of time, and just like the instructions say, bam, you get what it promises. Like a recipe, man. Boy, life is not that way, though. Here's a passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. (laughs) What? Okay, this is written by the same guy that wrote those Proverbs we just read? Yes. It says, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool? Will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? (laughs) And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Man, if Proverbs is linear, then Ecclesiastes is all over the map. It is not a recipe. Okay, so what does Job have to do with these two books? Job then is the field. You can put my gridiron up there. See, yeah, that didn't play out. See if you can fiddle with that and put Proverbs on the left side and Ecclesiastes on the right. And Job in the middle. Come on, Ethan. I'm serious. All right. (laughs) Ethan's laughing at me like, yeah, right. I can't do that. All right. So we'll just make believe then, Ethan. We'll do do what we can do to press on the Lord's message, even though you're standing in the way of that right now. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It's okay. He'll forgive you. No. Proverbs on the left. Ecclesiastes was supposed to be on the right in my copy, and then Job is sort of the center. Imagine this being a football field, all right? This was my weak, lame attempt at Google Docs or whatever this is, Google something, where I'm making these slides, and I was trying to make a little gridiron, a little football field, where Proverbs is playing Ecclesiastes on this football field called Job. But I think in reality, it's not so much a football field, because football is too tame. It would need to be like a lacrosse or rugby I mean, there need to be some bloodshed and like some real, you know, hockey maybe, busted out teeth. I mean, this, this field is rough where Proverbs and Ecclesiastes play out and do battle on this field, this real-life story called Job, where things aren't linear and things don't add up. Okay, go ahead and turn that slide off. Let's go to this next one. The next thing I want to sort of build into, you're going to see those... Those, uh, you're going to see how Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job sort of fit together, I think, as we spend some time together this morning, but you'll also see that in the coming weeks. The second thing I want to build into you before we get into our passage is that this book, the book of Job, provides three levels of wisdom. Okay, The first level of wisdom we could call... Priestly wisdom. Go ahead and put that first slide up. Priestly is right there at the bottom. I want to keep that at the bottom. Hopefully the next couple of slides will work out. Uh, Priestly wisdom stays at the bottom. Let me kind of summarize for you what priestly wisdom is. Uh, A priest, if you've read the book of Leviticus or the book of uh, Deuteronomy, for example, some of the book of Exodus, you see some really specific details that are given to the priests. The priests have certain... um, steps in an offering, and then it depends on the kind of offering that they're actually doing. It depends on what they do, how many times you wash something, what you cut, what you set aside, what you put over here, what you do over there, what portion is eaten by the priest, what portion is eaten by the worshiper, and what portion is burned up and sublimated in the fire. All, I mean, really detailed instructions. And all the while, priests are supposed to wear certain garments. They're supposed to have them cleaned every day. They're slicing and dicing. They're like... Um, like a butcher slash um, uh, veterinarian, <laughs> I mean, slash uh, uh, priest all at the same time. And then also on top of that, they're also like a doctor, and then they're supposed to sort of discern who's clean or recovered from leprosy or some sort of rash, and then they go through a cleansing ritual, for example. There are tons of stuff that a priest has to do that requires a tremendous amount of wisdom. Okay, but for the priest, I'm going to just tell you right now, it's pretty black and white. Those those instructions are very, very specific. If you've read through the book of Leviticus, you're going, man, these guys had their work cut out for them. But then it's written there in black and white. They have an issue. They have a page they can turn to that tells them specifically how they reckon with it wisely with priestly wisdom. Okay, Priestly wisdom is something that's sort of a baseline wisdom. The next level of wisdom, you go ahead and hit the next slide there, is kingly wisdom. Okay, right there, the second level up. The king had to understand everything that the priest understood. The king had to have a view of all that the priest knew, but then the king had to know more than that. The king had to be tuned into nuance. Okay, you know the story, or you may know the story. If you don't, I'm going to share it with you. The story of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon prayed for wisdom, and then a famous story that unfolded on the same chapter right after that. I'll read this brief story, and you'll see an example. Of kingly wisdom, where things are not black and white, okay? The two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. You can envision these two women standing before Solomon. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast, and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he's not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, "'No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours.' The first said, "'No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine.' Thus they spoke before the king." This sounds like the dilemma that a parent gets into where they have two kids claiming two opposite stories, but they're absolutely true, right? You know that moment, parents, where you're sitting there going, I need the wisdom of Solomon. Where's a sword? What can I cut in half here to make sense of this crazy dilemma? How can I possibly make sense of this? If the priest was having to make this decision, you know what he would do, right? Oh, you're prostitutes? Well, everybody get rocks because we just need to go and stone you. The priest wouldn't have anything to deal with here. The priest would not have enough wisdom to reckon with this problem. You'd need some more refined wisdom, some more, uh, a wisdom that dealt with nuance. And the king said, The one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead. And my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. That's not in black and white anywhere else in our Bible, people. You understand that, right? This was going outside the lines right here. Nuance. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. And the other said, He shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. There's priestly wisdom, which is, it's wisdom. But then on top of that, there's kingly wisdom. King, kingly wisdom absorbs priestly wisdom, but then it has room for gray areas to make decisions that are outside black and white. Okay. Now, the book of Job is unique. It gives us both of those perspectives, but it gives us something else. This next level of wisdom. Go ahead and put that next slide up there prophetly wisdom. That's not a real word. It's a word I made up, but it's one that kind of gives you a place to park prophet-like wisdom. Prophet-like wisdom. The prophet had to understand everything that the the priest understood. The prophet had to understand all the rituals and laws and all the Levitical uh, practices and all those applications. The prophet also had to understand the mind and intentions of the king. He had to have room for nuance to sort out kingly-type decisions. But the prophet also had another vantage point Up and beyond that, the prophet had a view into the throne room and the intentions of God. You've heard the message of the prophets, the major and minor prophets. God says this. Well, how do you know that prophet? Because God is giving them a message. God gives them this big vantage point that sticks their heads up and above and through the styrofoam into the throne room. Now, I'm joking. It's not styrofoam, but you can kind of envision what I'm talking about. In Job, we have that vantage point. In Job, we actually have access into the throne room. We see these events unfolding in the book of Job that are on ground level. It would be Job and his friends and his wife and his family, his servants, these things that we're seeing right here. But then we have the vantage point also where we are invited into the throne room. We're able to stick our head up like a giraffe into the throne room and peer around and we see these things unfolded where we realize that God is up to something in these events that are happening down here. Job is a unique perspective and vantage point for us because it gives us priestly wisdom, kingly wisdom, and prophetly wisdom, peering into the throne room to see what God Is up to. Let me just say, go ahead and get ready for Job. If you flipped around with me on those passages, you can get back to Job chapter 1. And let me just say as you're turning there, these three levels of wisdom, this is a little side note to parents. I kind of mentioned briefly, you know, the parent that's standing over two children that have two completely different stories that are just all in, saying they're absolutely true, and you're trying to sort them out. Let me just speak to parents for a minute about this three levels of wisdom. And I want to speak to supervisors. I want to speak to anybody that's in any position of authority, Teachers, any one of you in any position of authority, to understand that you are wise if you learn to incorporate all three levels of wisdom into your movement with other people. Priestly wisdom is not always black and, wh- or is black and white, but circumstances are not always black and white. I'll give you an example a kid comes home from school and he's acting up, he's not doing what you're telling him to do, Dad. Let's talk to dads because I can identify with what dads do when dad gets fr- frustrated. Dad's speaking to a child that comes home from, the, from, from school at the end of the day. He's telling the kid to go clean up his room or telling him to go tend to some chore or something, and the kid acts up and kid disobeys. And what does dad tend to do? He tends to move black and white like a priest. I said something, and it's black and white what you have to do, what I have to do. Now you're going to get punished and making a beeline for the paddle. I've done it. Is there anything wrong with that? Hey, it is some level of wisdom. But kingly wisdom understands, too, there may be some nuance in there. This child may have had a tough day at school. This child may have been bullied at school that day. This child may have been uh, mistreated by a classmate or a teacher or perceived that they were mistreated. This child might be carrying all kind of stuff home at this school day, and they're acting out in a way that, for you, it's black and white, but it may be a little more nuanced than that. And you might need some kingly wisdom in how you move with them, Dad. And even beyond that, You can peer up through the styrofoam with the giraffe poking your head into the throne room, realizing that God is up to something with this child. That he's raising this child to be a follower and child of his, first and foremost. That what might feel like an inconvenience for you, where you want to make a beeline for the paddle, might be a moment for you to go, what happened to this this boy today? Let's sit down with him, and instead of making a beeline for the paddle, let's make a beeline for the couch. Let me put my arm around my lad I say, come here, buddy. Tell me about your school day. Tell me what unfolded for you today. Oh, man, that sounds hard. That explains how you responded to me when I told you to do your chores. Now, I still want you to do them. And you still need to honor your father and mother. But I understand what you are carrying home today. Let's step into the throne room. And pray for you and pray for this classmate and pray for this circumstance because God is at work on you, shaping you and honing you to be one of his own. Man, you see those levels of wisdom applied? Uh, that alone is a treasure. We could just call it, a quit, call it quits at the end of the day and walk away and just try and apply that and maybe we'd have something really beautiful happening in our homes with tomorrow's church. Okay, let's get back to Job. We are preaching Job. We're not preaching parenting this morning. So let's get back to Job. Job, here's my plan to sort of capture up or sort of gather up and capture a season of preaching in Job. Okay, you ready? I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 1 through chapter 2 around verse 9 or 10. Okay, and I'm going to read and make a few comments as we go so that we can sort of gather up this story. And then I'm going to read one little excerpt from chapter 4. And I believe that will be enough for us to gather up the story so that we can move forward in the coming weeks. Okay? So that's our plan. I know I had a long intro, but I want to make sure that we're reading Job the same way. So that was necessary. So let's get into the book of Job. Here we go. Chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now this guy was likely an Edomite. We don't know exactly when he lived. Some people uh, think that he may have been one of Abraham's. Uh, or excuse me, one of Esau's offspring, maybe his grandson, the Septuagint, uh, suggested he was Esau's grandson. We don't know exactly who he was, but he was probably what we might call a micro-king. Okay, he had a little property, a little piece of land. I shouldn't even say a little, a sizable piece of land. He had lots of uh, critters. He had lots of servants. He had a big old family. He had a big old spread. It made me think of Bonanza. I grew up watching some Bonanza. It's like the Cartwrights, right? I mean, they, they had... a a spread, okay, and this guy is a micro king or the head rancher, we might imagine him. Okay, and two, it says this passage, he is the greatest of the people of the East. Now, I only go into original language when it's very important, and I think it's very important this morning that where it says greatest, uh, the greatest of the peoples of the East, actually, that word there is sons of the East. He's the greatest of the sons of the East. And the reason I bring up that word, the reason I want to draw that out of the Hebrew is because it's sort of lost in the translation of peoples. This book is a book about what it means to be a son of God. This book is about what God does with his sons. And we're not just talking about males. We're talking about his children. Okay, this is a book about what God does with his sons. And this word son is used over and over again in these first couple chapters. And it's sort of embedded within this passage in the Hebrew, and I want to draw it out because it's pointed out this guy is the finest son, the greatest of the sons of the East. This guy is a stud. He is a faith stud. Let's see. I'll prove it to you. The next few verses. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. That's probably their birthdays. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, I don't know why the girls didn't get birthday parties. They should have. If if I were in charge, if it was my house, they would have. But in this time, in this culture, in this context, it was just the guys apparently that had their little birthday parties. And they would invite over the sisters. Okay, so his sons would hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Man, For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Okay, what Job is doing here is like this guy is father extraordinaire. I mean, he's the finest son of the East. We know that already, but he's an amazing father here too. He says, oh, my kids are getting together for their birthday parties and they might do something that's that's dishonoring to God. They might curse God over the course of that celebration somehow. So I'm just going to go offer some sacrifices for them just to cover their possible sins. And it says it's not like a one-off. He does it every now and again. It says he does it continually. This guy is mindful of his God and he's mindful of his children. He's a great father, right? He's the finest son of the East and a great Father, a fine worshiper. This guy, if there was a picture like, you know, like the Marine Corps poster. You know, the the typical Marine Corps poster. You don't put the ugliest, homeliest, least Marine-like, like like doughy, (laughs) you know, guy up there for your Marine Corps posters. You put like a, a poster Marine. This guy is the poster Proverbs guy. If Proverbs had a poster, Job would be on it. Right? He's the wise man. He is the good father. He's the finest son of the east. If Proverbs were a movie, and you had that little movie thing up there, Job would be the main character. Man, he's a dandy. He's a dandy. Or six. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, okay, shift gears. You kind of know Job's story, okay, a little bit. You'll get to know Job more as we go. But we kind of got the big picture of this micro king, the finest son of the east. He's a dandy, pious man. Like in a, not a negative piety, but a real genuine piety. And, uh, and then we're going to shift gears here now in verse 6. Meanwhile, Job is being Job. He's continually offering sacrifice for his family. And meanwhile, this goes on in, in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Okay, There's that word again, sons. Okay, I told you this is a book about sonship. It's a book about what God does with His sons. Now, who these sons of God are, sons of God are, we don't know. They might be heavenly creatures. They might be saints that have gone on before them. Okay, we don't know who those sons are. They might be elders. You know, some sort of unique role in the heavenly court. Okay, but the sons present themselves, and among them also, he's not necessarily identified as a son. Satan presents himself. Now, how, how Satan is in the high court of heaven, I don't know. But it's, it's here. I mean, it's in black and white. He presents himself as part of this entourage into the throne room in the high court of heaven. But one son is noticeably absent, isn't he? Okay, we've got the sons of God, but you look around and you've go got this court going down. And, and one, the finest son of the east is not in there. <laughs> right? You're looking around. Hey, where's, where's Job? Is he in there? Hold on, let me look. Oh, wait a second, he's not. He's off busy being Job. He's off busy offering continually sacrifices for his sons and daughters in case they err against the living God. He's off being a pious, God-fearing man, the finest son of the East. Meanwhile, court is going down. And he's not even represented in there. He doesn't even have a lawyer in there. And there's, but chances are it's be okay because maybe there's no decisions being made about him, right? <laughs> we know the story to know otherwise. Let's see what happens in verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. You see that picture of Satan just prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And God says to him in verse 8, The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you eaten at that new place in Rockwall? That's almost what it sounds like. Man, have you, tie, it's not new. Kung Pao, it's amazing. It's the best Thai in Rockwall. Have you eaten there? It's awesome. Man, that's the way this reads. Just let it read the way it reads. Have you considered my servant Job? You hungry? Have you ever had some Job? Man, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, let me just gather this up. If you didn't take the narrator's words for it, Okay, we don't know who the narrator of Job is. But if you didn't take the narrator's words that he's one of the fine, he is the finest son of the East. If you didn't take the narrator's words for the fact that he's offering sacrifices for children continually, that he's a pious man, then maybe you'll consider God's commentary on Job. Okay, we'll see what God has to say about Job here. He says he is a blameless man. That means he's all in. Does it mean he's never sinned? No. It means he's blameless. He's like... All in with God. Okay, He's given God everything he has. All that he is. He's blameless. He's upright. He's righteous. That's the synonym with righteousness. And he fears God and he turns away from evil. Those four things. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And yet, don't miss what we just read. God served him up. Have you eaten at that new place in Rockwall? Have you ever had some job, Satan? Man, I want, you to, I want to point out, too, that this is important. He serves him up like he's an offering. He serves him up like he's an offering. And remember that offerings that are served up to the living God are not bucktooth lambs. They're not three-legged lambs. They're not one-legged lambs. OK? They're not flawed in any way. They are unblemished. They are blameless. They are whole. And this Job is being offered up an unblemished, fine sacrifice. So let's see what Satan says in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. Look at the Cartwright spread. I mean, they've got all these critters. Look at all these these cowboys they got working for him. His possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan is doing what Satan does. He's accusing. He's accusing Job of having a mercenary faith. (laughs) God, you and I both know that Job is really just in it for the loot, he's just really in it for the goods. He's really in it for all the stuff that you give him, all the benefits of him. But he doesn't really love you. That's what Satan accuses. He says, take away all his stuff and his people, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, this is my version. Okay, this is the Ben's translation. We're going to go to the real word in a second. In my words, he turns to Satan and he says, be all you can be. Satan knock yourself out. You think he'll do that? Well, you just go ahead and you be all you can be and we'll see. Okay, here's what he says to him specifically in the word. He says, "Behold all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And let's see what happens here in these next few verses. I'm going to just tell you right now, they are gruesome. They're easy to read. But they're gruesome. Just imagine for a moment, we're talking about a real person. We're talking about a real man that loves the Lord. We're talking about a real man that's blameless, who's all in. Imagine this sequence of events happening in any one of our lives. Imagine it happening in anyone living. It wouldn't be in front page news. Listen to this. Listen what happens in these next few verses. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Oldest brother's birthday. They got the little pointy hats on. Got the little things that you blow, that unroll. You know they got confetti, you know. Glitter, throwing it on each other. Edible glitter, because when it lands on the cake, you can still eat it. Man, they're having a ball. It's awesome. Also, the oldest brother always has the best birthday parties. It's great. Sisters are sort of hosting. It's a good time. They're eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh, man. Wow, that's a tragedy. We've got the oxen and donkey that are taken by the Sabaeans, and we've got the servants that are dead, the ones that tended to the oxen and donkeys. Okay, that's bad news. Okay? While he's yet speaking... Excuse me, servant, let me interrupt you. I have some really bad news. It looks like you have really have something bad to tell, and it sounds like you're just on the tail end of telling it. But let me jump in and interrupt you, because I have some more bad news that I need to share with Job. While he's yet speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. What? Okay, the Sabaeans I could get. You know, you got a raiding army. i got this thing that happens over here where Sabaeans come and they take our critters and they kill our servants. That makes a lot of sense. But, okay, fire fell from heaven. The fire of God fell from the sky fire. Where does that happen? I had no heads up. Meteorologists didn't say there was any fire report today. Low fire threat. What in the world is going on here? And while he's yet speaking, there came another and said, Well, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on your camels. And they took the camels and they struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow, the casualty list is mounting. And we've got oxen and donkeys that are gone. We've got the servants that are dead that tended to the oxen and donkey. We've got the sheep that are sort of burned up like an offering. Sounds a lot like an offering. And then we've got the servants that tended to the sheep that are also burned up like an offering. And add to them that the camels are gone now with the Chaldeans and the servants that tended to the camels. Are dead. And while he's yet speaking, excuse me, can I interrupt you? I have one more report for Job here. While he's yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. They're wearing their pointy hats and blowing their little things, their little things that make noise and unroll. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. What wind hits in four cardinal directions at the same exact time? That's crazy. The four corners sound a whole lot like an altar. This thing is sounding like an offering is taking place here. The wind folds this house in. A great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Man, that is quite a casualty list. Man, I wonder if Job is going to do what Satan said he was going to do. I wonder if he's going to curse God. Let's see. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And he, uh uh-oh, he worshiped. He worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave me all this stuff. And all these people even. And the Lord has taken it away. Blessed be, not cursed be. Blessed be. The name of the Lord. Man, what what a guy. Wow. You got to like the guy. He didn't blame the Sabaeans. Those wretched Sabaeans. I'll get those Chaldeans yet. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't go after the Sabaeans. He doesn't go after the Chaldeans. He doesn't go after the meteorologist. He didn't tell me we were going to have wind from four cardinal directions today fire from the sky. He didn't go after the guy that built his son's house. I'm going to get him yet. Those building plans were terrible. A wind blew over the house. Man, he attributed this great calamity, this terrible loss to, don't miss it, to his Lord. He attributed to his Lord. He didn't say, God must have taken the day off today. Wow. He must have been on vacay. Where was he today? He attributed all this mess, these cascading calamities to his Lord. He said, the Lord has taken this away. Just like the Lord gave it to me. And the next verse says, in all this, Job did not sin. This was not a product of his sin. The stuff that's happening to him is not a consequence of something that he did. And he did not charge God with wrong." Okay, just let that hit you for a minute. He did not charge with God with wrong. All right, get, can we just acknowledge for a moment, it sounds kind of wrong. I mean, can we just all together for a moment go, wait a second, this guy is the finest son of the East. He's a pious man. This guy offers sacrifices for his children in case they may have transgressed God unknowingly. This guy, is blame, this guy is blameless. He's upright. He fears the Lord. He turns away from evil. And this terrible stuff is happening to him? Man, that sounds kind of wrong, doesn't it? Man, especially if somebody reads a book of Proverbs, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Let's see what happens in the next little window into the throne room. Okay, we'll move through this one quickly. And then we're going to sort of land the plane with one big lesson for the morning. All right, let's move in the next chapter. Maybe things will go different in this next chapter. Again, there was a day when the sons of God present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Okay, the same, it's like a a deja vu all over again. I'm trying to remember the guy's name that said that, but I love it. It's funny. Deja vu all over again. Sons of God come, present themselves, but you're looking around like, oh, wait a minute, let me look in there. Oh, wait, Job's not in this one either. Looks like we're going to have court again, and Job, this finest son of the East, is not in there either, and this time around either. So, the sons are gathering, but this son, particular son, is missing. Having lost all that matters to him, the sons of God present themselves before the Lord, and Satan comes with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you eaten at that new place in Roy City? Actually, we should say Rockwall again because we're still talking about the same guy to keep the image the same. Have you eaten from that that new place in in, in Rockwall? The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan said to the Lord, from going to and fro on all the earth, from walking up and down on it, he sounded really hungry prowling around. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Man, remember Job, Satan? How'd he do? How'd that test go where you took everything away from him? How did he handle that? Did he curse me or did he bless me? Looks like he still holds fast to his integrity. You incited me to destroy him. Without reason. We could add to the criteria or the list of characteristics of this guy. The finest son of the East, blameless, upright, turns away from evil, fears the Lord. Pious, giving offerings and uh, sacrifices for his own son. We could add in there that he was incited without reason. Man, this guy truly is a dandy. He did nothing to deserve this cascade of calamities. Nothing to deserve what has happened to him. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, this guy is undaunted. This guy, this Satan is undaunted. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Touch his flesh now. See, I was just kind of kidding when you take all his stuff away. Clearly that didn't work, but I'm not going to even acknowledge that. But you touch his flesh, now you make him suffer physically beyond his loss of everything, then he'll curse you. And the Lord said to Satan, be all you can be. Yeah, that's my translation. Knock yourself out, Satan. Give it your best shot. Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself when he sat in the ashes. Years ago, we traveled with a family to Germany and um, we were on a mission trip with Igo. They have Igo banquet tonight. We were traveling with... Uh, a family to Germany for a a mission venture and Noah Moody or uh, Leland Moody is the father of this family he's passed away since but Leland had a bad case of poison ivy on the whole trip that he'd already had and he was like like if he would have had potsherds to scrape himself he would have done that you know what I'm talking about that itch that's so bad where you don't care you know people say man don't scratch it it's gonna scar you for life like I don't care flesh coming off Man, this must have been bad He's got sores all over his body that the only thing that makes it feel better is to scrape it with a potsherd. Man, this is terrible. Struck him with these loathsome sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. I'm wondering, too, you know, you can add that to the calamity list. He lost his oxen. He lost his, his... Camels, he lost his sheep, he lost his servants, he lost his sons, he lost his daughters, he added in that, that he's got loathsome sores, he probably has some version of leprosy. It's what someone would else someone else would have considered leprosy. That what goes along with that is you're now considered unclean and you gotta live out out in isolation. This guy that was like the Papa Cartwright in the middle of the spread, in the middle of the hacienda, middle of the life of the ranch, is now an unclean person that probably has to live in isolation. Man, it's terrible. And as if his suffering weren't enough, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just go ahead and do what Satan said you were going to do anyway and curse God and die. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That word I not appreciate the little note down at the bottom of the page in my ESV. If you have an ESV, look at the bottom of the page. It says disaster. If you have a tough time with the notion of evil coming from God, which I do as well, then let disaster fit in there because that's what that word means. Can we accept good things from God and not also disaster and not also calamity? And then it says, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we not receive good from God? Seven sons... Three daughters, a big spread, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, very many servants, a micro kingdom. Shall we not accept these good things from God and not also that you lose your oxen, you lose your donkeys, you lose your servants, you lose your sheep, you lose your camels, you lose your seven sons, you lose your three daughters, and you are covered with sores from the bottom of your foot to the top of your head. In all this, he did not sin with his lips or attribute God with something that wasn't true. Man, this is important. I think it's important that we see this. Just summary of the story. He's the finest son of the East. He fears God. He's offered up by the God that he fears. And then Satan's doing, he loses everything except his wife. Arguably, that could have been a continuing suffering to hear that from his wife. Just go ahead and curse God. You know the access we give each other as spouses. You can make your husband or your wife sore with but a word. And you can also make them feel like a piece of trash with but a word. And imagine your wife just telling you, just go ahead and curse him. Just go ahead and curse him and die. Man, what a terrible story. As if the suffering wasn't enough. If what he lost wasn't enough, you're introduced to his friends. I'm going to summarize his friends in one verse. And I want you to see this verse. Look at chapter 4. And then we're going to gather this thing up. We have to hear from his friends. The sizable part of this book of Job comes from his friends, this section called the dialogues. If you've read the book of Job, you know it's real tidy up until the end about chapter 2. Chapter 3, he goes into a lament where he's lamenting the day of his brain. I just wish I had never even been born. And then the dialogues begin. And it's the sizable portion of the book where these three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, these three friends, just lay into him, one, one right after another. And then a fourth, a little young guy, chimes in named Elihu later on. But let me summarize what these friends have to say to him. The friends show up. He's sitting in, in sackcloth and ashes. He's scraping himself. The friends show up, and they weep, and they sit with him in silence for seven days. Okay, that's, that's pretty good friends so far. Sometimes you, somebody's really in the throes of stuff. Don't just say, hey, God has a special plan for your life. Maybe the best thing you can do is just shut it. Just put your arm around somebody and just be quiet and just weep with them. So these three friends have a good showing so far, but then they start speaking. And this guy Eliphaz so nicely summarizes what their whole message was through the rest of the book. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or, were, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. It's a summary of the message from all three friends and even Elihu for the rest of the book up and toward where God speaks. The message from these three friends that ended up being bad gouged, the largest portion of the book of Job is not true. The largest portion of the book of Job is this message. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Remember who was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And there's some crazy bad stuff happening to you. So you do the math, buddy. Man, thanks friend. Wow, that's so comforting, right? Thanks so much, buddies. I'm so glad you came over here and showed up to give me this message. The suffering continues at the mouths of his friends. So we left Job in July of last year, sitting in sackcloth and ashes At the end of the rebukes from his friends, man, he suffered gracious. The finest son of the east, a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord and turned away from evil. He's an unblemished lamb. And he's sitting in ashes, covered with sores. He's ruined, he's decreated. He's crying out and groping for God, yet he is holding fast to his integrity. So many lessons from the book of Job in this last season. I thought I would just summarize it with just one big lesson, and it is this. His friend Eliphaz said, the innocent don't perish. Remember? Remember? Good things happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to good people, is what Eliphaz said. Where were the upright cut off? Here's the lesson that we learned over the course of this book. Because remember, we have prophetly insight. We know what's going on in the throne room. The message that we learned is that the innocent, in fact, do perish. We learned in this last season that the upright are at times absolutely cut off. And the message that we learned so far is that a sizable portion of this book of Job is just flat, bad, gouge. And it's eloquent too. Some of the finest poetry in our Bibles is written by guys that were saying true things but applying them wrongly. A lot of what these guys had to say was true. You could pull it out of the page. You could put it on your desk at the office. Some really good stuff, but it's applied in a situation that was not fitting. Man, the right or true information wrongly applied is false information. And that's what came from these guys. If you want to summarize the wrong message, the wrong message from these guys is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's not a good rule to live by. Y'all know we build that into one another from day one, right? We do it with our kids. Kids, you study hard, you're going to make good grades. Right? Kids, you apply yourself in school, things are going to go well for you. You work hard at sports, man, you're going to be great at it. Whatever you want to be, you can do, you can be. And that all makes a lot of sense until it doesn't. What about the kid that applies himself that doesn't have the wherewithal to to make good grades? We're just going to keep forcing it. Just keep pressing it. Just keep pressing it. Man, things, things are not linear all the time. They're not black and white. They don't work that way. Good things don't always happen to good people. And bad things don't always happen just to bad people. A lot of times, bad things happen to good people. You can be doing everything right, and it can become completely come unraveled. I thought I'd give you a visual I thought I'd give you a visual of the message of Job's buddies. This is the message that we so often build into one another. You can even hear it in church. Man, you follow God, everything's going to go great for you. Really? Following God may cost you your life. Go ahead and put my visual up there. This guy skipped leg day. <laughs> like every day. Like he never had a leg day. I mean, the good thing is, no, we're not picking on anybody, and I think it's actually Photoshop. But it is kind of funny. But it's a great visual of what it's like for you to live in this black and white environment and apply this principle of good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people in everything. Because it works a lot of times. Man, you can lift some stuff, but you're not nimble. You can't handle, you can't move around, you can't negotiate, you can't zig and zag and slip and slide to handle these curveballs that they're thrown at you. Man, don't be this guy. Don't be Eliphaz, Bildad, and Elihu, and Zophar, where things are just all linear and all tidy. Man, bad stuff's happening to you? Ooh. Ooh. You better stop doing that bad thing. Man, some bad stuff might be happening to you that God actually might be orchestrating for something bigger than you. Man, that's a great message of Job. A great message of Job. We have that prophetly wisdom that we know that there was something going on behind the scenes. We had that poster boy. Okay, you can turn that image off. I don't (laughs) want to study this guy anymore. Crazy, strapped. Man, we know that God had nothing but good things to say about Job. Blameless, upright, feared the Lord, and turned away from evil. Yet he slayed him. Didn't he? He slayed him. This book is a book about what God does with his sons, a good father. What he does with his sons, that's whatever it takes to bring his sons into his presence. You wanna know what Job is about? It's about a good father bringing his son into his presence. My encouragement to you is to let your suffering be reframed, repackaged through the lens of a good father that's doing something with that. He wasn't on vacay. Whatever you're going through. He wasn't snoozing. He is a good father and he's doing something with this to bring you into his presence that's the carrot people that's the carrot let's pray God what a great story what a great window into our troubles and trials and sufferings and great window into the character of a good father God we're thankful that you are not that you're never idle, that you're never on vacation, that you're never caught off guard, that anything that happens to us only happens by permission. What a great view, prophetly view into this throne room to see the access that you gave for a purpose, Lord. I pray in these next couple weeks that you will amplify and expose that glorious purpose that you have in suffering and this good thing that you are doing to us to bring us into your presence. Lord, we are thankful for this fine book and this fine story. Praying this in Christ's name, amen. On our supper this morning, we're going to enjoy another son who was offered up. Offered up. He was and is the finest son of the East and the West and the north and the south. Hmm. He too was and is blameless and upright. He turned away from evil perfectly, flawlessly, every single time. And he held fast to his integrity, though tempted, and he entrusted himself To a good father, even up and to and through the cross. Man, let's enjoy this fine son as we distribute the elements.